Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer, Grant Wall, SI.com's Brian Strauss. We are coming to you all just before the U.S. women's national team takes on China in the Women's World Cup quarterfinals. Grant, let's welcome you in first from the ground in Canada. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well here in the Great White North. I got to go to uh, Edmonton uh, for the first time in my life for USA against Colombia. Um, very far north. Uh, farthest Are there Wayne Gretzky statues on every corner? There were not. Uh, no. uh, but it was, it was kind of fascinating and, and weird in the sense that it's, it's a long ways from the border, actually. That's why there were fewer U.S. fans at the Columbia game. And uh, it would, there was still light in the sky at midnight. And the sun would come up at like four in the morning, uh, which in itself was just sort of crazy. Um, but uh, I'm in Vancouver now flying to Ottawa tomorrow for uh, USA China. Uh, it's a big country, as I've learned here uh, covering this tournament. Uh, went to Ottawa last week. Um, and I'm getting a, a real good taste of Canada, not just the big three cities of Vancouver, Toronto, and, and Montreal. I've uh, been to Winnipeg now. Um, been to Ottawa, been to Vancouver, been to Edmonton. Uh, so kind of getting around. I fully expect to be in Montreal for uh, a semifinal between the U.S. and either France or Germany. It's, it's a crazy knockout round setup for the U.S. where, in my opinion, the first two knockout round opponents, Colombia and China, are easier than any of the three U.S. group stage opponents. Um, you know, that's not to, to say China can't win the game because I think there's interesting circumstances involved here. Uh, with two of the U.S.'s best players being suspended on, on yellow cards, Megan Rapino and Lauren Holiday, uh, in China playing some pretty good soccer. Um, and the U.S. right now not playing very attractive soccer. The back line has been fantastic, as people have seen. Uh, Julie Johnston is, is becoming a star before our eyes. Uh, Hope Solar hasn't really been tested much since the first game, but the midfield just doesn't seem to be able to create much of anything uh, and the few times it has has been through Rapino, who's going to be out. So, um, strange time right now for, for U.S. fans. And it's really hard to get a sense of uh, how to measure this team's performance in the World Cup just because of, uh, lately, the, the quality of the opposition. It is something where, you know, you hear a lot of the players saying, you know, we haven't peaked yet. We haven't peaked yet. We're still winning, but we haven't peaked. And that's true and you don't want to peak in the group stage necessarily you don't want to peak until a quarterfinal semifinal final uh but at some point you gotta kind of show potential and and we haven't really seen a whole lot of it um i you know a ton of factors obviously play play into that and ultimately they they are winning look if this was the u.s men right and they had just won the group of death and skated to the quarterfinals of the world cup without playing all that well Jurgen Klinsmann would be given a, a lifetime extension. I mean, it's, you know, the, the standard bars are, are so different for, for two teams, right? And so, you know, the U.S. women, they get this 1999 final rematch with China, which I think is a pretty cool little wrinkle. Yeah. Um, and then after that, the, the tests get ramped up considerably with either Germany or France, like you said, in a potential semifinal. And then the other side of the bracket, I mean, look, Japan looks, looks fantastic. Australia's playing very well. Uh, and then Canada or England will be in the semifinal on that side as well. So we'll see what happens. Uh, 
back to China 1999 final. I kind of want to get get your guys' memories of of that game. Where where you were, what what you saw. Obviously, Sports Illustrated. We we've got the the Chastain cover, which is one of you know the all time great covers that this place has ever put out. Uh, Brian, start with you on on this. Um, just where where were you for that? I was in the uh, I was in the Washington Post newsroom. I, I I had just started at the Post and was only starting. You know, I started basically on the desk. You know, answering phones and handling press releases and being the guy who wrote up the two paragraphs on the on the George Mason women's volleyball team. Um, but they knew I they knew I knew soccer and 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 I was still playing at that point and and uh, um, and for a lot longer, fortunately. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I'd started covering a few high school and college games here and there. And, and so on the day of the final, they wanted me in the office sort of as, you know, someone who knew a bit about what was going on. And, and I remember my duty wound up being, we did a, like a big graphic of the shootout. And so I watched each of the penalty kicks and actually like on a piece of paper drew, you know, arrows and things to indicate where the kick went and how strong it was and which way the goalie dove and that kind of thing. And, and I, I made this little art project out of the shootout and then, you know, the, the magicians in the graphics department recreated it into a, uh, into a cool graphic on the sports page the next day. So that was, uh, that was how I covered my first women's world cup final. That's, that's pretty cool. Grant, Grant, what about, uh, what about you? Fully expecting Avi to say that he was preparing for his first year of preschool uh, at, at this time <laughs> in 1999. Easy. But, uh, but my memory was I was in the stadium uh, that day at the Rose Bowl, and um, there had been so much hype and buildup for that week. You have to remember that before that tournament, there really wasn't much attention at all. No one really expected this Women's World Cup would become this transcendent event that it became, and yet there was an entire week off between the semifinals and the final. And we're not used to seeing that these days in World Cups, but that's the way that tournament was scheduled. And that week of buildup allowed it to become something gigantic. It allowed uh, the media to descend on uh, the Los Angeles area in unprecedented ways for anything connected to U.S. soccer, in my opinion. I think it was even more than the 94 Men's World Cup team. Uh, you might disagree with me on that, but I, I think that was the case. Um, and then you know, it allowed people from all over the country to, to if they were hardcore fans or just had gotten caught up in this, to go to Pasadena. Uh, incredibly hot that day. Uh, it's, uh, it's no uh, coincidence to me that two World Cup finals, men, one men's, one women's, have been played in the Rose Bowl uh, at that time of year and both ended up 0-0 and going into penalties. Um, it's just, it was suffocating, uh, the amount of heat. Uh, you know, I remember Michelle Akers, uh, you know, hitting her head in that game long before we had concussion protocols and leaving the game and she was basically completely out of it. Um, you know, I remember just the, the way the game went and how much tension there was and how, uh, Christine Lilly cleared a ball off the line, like, you know, a little like Megan Klingenberg did in this tournament when the goalkeeper for the U.S. had been beaten, um, you know, I remember just how everything played out with the penalties and everything sort of moved in slow motion from my perspective, just trying to, to be on top of everything because I knew this would be a potentially historic story for Sports Illustrated magazine. Um, so you really did, it was one of those rare occasions where in, as it was happening, you felt a sense of history 
in real time. Um, and then after the game, I remember just trying to do as much interesting reporting as possible. Um, I wanted to find out, and I remember the lead to my story was about how they chose who took the penalty kicks because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of intrigue in that process uh, as far as who was going to go first, how it changed, how Mia Hamm originally didn't want to take a penalty, which was uh, you know sort of revealing, but then she got her courage up and said, yes, I'll take it. Um, and how Brandy Chastain was asked by Tony DeChico, uh, I want you to take it with your, with your left foot, uh, which was, she was not a left-footed player. Um, there's so much going on with that. And then I remember in, in my efforts to not just go to the press conference and get stuff, I went, I kind of snuck in uh, to the post-game U.S. party that night uh, with David Hershey, uh, a fellow soccer scribe who used to cover soccer for the New York Daily News. And I got stuff at that party uh, that nobody else had that was good for my magazine story. Like Michelle Akers didn't do any post-game media interviews because of her, her leaving the game with his head injury and being totally overcome with exhaustion. And I spoke to her at that event. Um, so... You know, for me, it was just a total adrenaline rush, you know, thinking back to that. I remember going back to my hotel in L.A. and just staying up all night to write the story and being so uh, just kind of overloaded at the end of it uh, that I I couldn't sleep. It was like 6 in the morning, and uh, it was just such a a big moment to be associated with, and I was like, 25 at the time so you know it was just uh an event that uh that i will never forget covering that's that's pretty cool really cool perspective and based on how you think i was three years old at the time i must have been putting like <laughs> macaroni on a on a piece of paper and making dioramas of of Brandy chastain's uh penalty no i uh i was at summer camp though <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> this is crazy nostalgia because of course we're, we're recording this a a five years and a day after uh, Donovan's goal. And, of course, yesterday we had all the nostalgia over that and now today over over the 99 final. Yeah, it's pretty cool how every summer now, especially, you know, when there are all these events, you know, you get all these year to the day of. I I believe today is actually also the year to the day that Luis Suarez bit Chiellini last year. So it's just a lot of cool – you know, anniversaries, just, just remembering some, some pretty awesome times, both on, on and off the field. Those are really cool it's stories. Kind of, it's kind of remarkable how, how, how I don't cover it closely enough to, to know the sort of the, the intricacies of why, but how far China fell from that, yeah. from, from, from the era of Sun Wen and, and a team that, that was, you know, uh, inches away from, from winning a Women's World Cup to, to where now, I mean, you know, they didn't even qualify for the 2011 tournament. They, they've come into this tournament, I guess, a, a very young and, and untested team that had, you know, I mean, what, they hadn't won a game in six months, right, when, when the tournament had started. So, um, you know, I, I'd be curious to know more about sort of the, the cultural, financial, sporting reasons or whatever that China was a world power uh, 15 years ago and, and, and now is, is a team that's probably feeling very good about having made the quarterfinals. Well, I think a big part of it is they did have a, a, an amazing generation of players, Soon Wen, chief among them, but not the only one. I remember uh, the player uh, Liu Ling was just a stud midfielder in that tournament in 99 when China beat the defending champions, Norway, 5 nothing in the semifinals, just obliterated them. And 
you know, just a lot of, I've been talking about, uh, you know, that old China team with Jerry Longman from the New York Times this week, because he wrote a book on it. He went to China back in the day and, and talked to all these players. And um, Gao Hong, the, the goalkeeper who had an attitude, who, and there was a lot of personality on that Chinese team. And, um, you know, it's interesting to hear where some of those players are now. And a couple of them are actually here at this tournament, including Soon Wen. So uh, I get into Ottawa, and I'm hoping to track a couple of the Chinese players down because, uh, uh, you know, they, you know, as a team, it really hurt them uh, not to win that World Cup because they thought they were the best team in the tournament. They had played the U.S. in the gold medal game in the 1996 Olympics as well. And then I've talked to a couple of them uh, in previous years. Like They say that over the next 10 years or so, not only did they not have a, a great generation of players, but their federation really did less and less to build up women's soccer. They didn't play many games. They didn't seem to care much about youth development and investing. They didn't have many registered female players in China during those years. And I remember going to the 2004 Olympics um, in Greece, uh, seeing China just get completely obliterated by Germany. Uh, I forget the score. It was like 7 nothing, 8 nothing, something like that. And realizing how far China had fallen without that generation of players and without that support. And it's nice to see them start to get it going again. This is a very young team. Uh, and I like their coach, Huawei, when he's not getting sent off or doing ridiculous things on the sideline. <laughs> uh, he actually seems like a pretty good coach. And you wonder, um, you know, the, the kind of added incentive maybe that that team has. I think that's kind of overlooked in this game. I mean, the, from the U.S. perspective, I think a lot of people look at it as just, oh, it's the USA's next step to, to playing Germany or France, right? I think a lot of presumptions that they're going to get there without, you know, even without Rapino or Holiday. Um, but when you but, see like this team, I mean, they played each other in December in Brazil. It was one one. Right, exactly. I mean, China, not a pushover, and obviously there there is motivation there, right? So, and and at the end of the day, this is the the World Cup quarterfinals. No one, no one's, it's everyone's bringing their best at this point, and and it's you know anyone watching this U.S. team can't assume that they're going to walk over anybody at this point, just with the, with the way things are going. Especially as Grant noted, I mean, they've had they have one player who who is capable of of creating. With the ball at her feet, and that's been that's been Rapino. You know, she she ha- she has a bit of vision, a bit of audacity. She can beat players on the dribble, and she's the only one who 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 can make it make a defense. You know, make some tough decisions. And uh, and with her not being there, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, this, this team this team's going to have to pass this test in in order to uh, walk go into the semifinal. I mean, I still think they'll win, but uh, you know, it's it's going to get real in the semifinal. You know, we we've talked about how in, in every World Cup. You know, the U.S. should always be expected to, to win any game it, it, it plays. But there's always going to be two or three teams in each World Cup uh, that can beat them. And and 15 years ago, it was China and, and Norway and teams like that. And now it's teams like Germany, France, and Japan. And, and eventually, they're going to have to beat one or two of those teams to win the tournament. I'm already hearing comparisons being made to the Brazil men's team from last year's World Cup there uh, of getting to the semifinal and then getting obliterated by Germany. Which, you know, that would be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But um, Germany or France, if the U.S. does advance, is going to be a very difficult opponent. Uh, and right now, the way the U.S. is playing, I see their, their key their scenario for victory being good defense and set pieces. And, and that is, that's kind of tough on fans, I think. 
Yeah, and especially, it's funny you mentioned the Brazil comparison because I was kind of thinking about that as well, just the way this team is perceived. It's it's not good enough for them to win. They have to do it while looking like the best team for it to be considered a, a complete success, I feel like, is is kind of like the, the general feeling right now, both in and, and out of the soccer community, more so in, I guess. But uh, the fact of the matter is they, they've given up one goal <laughs> in the yeah. entire World Cup, and it came 27 minutes into the tournament. So... Uh, like a, a lot to to still be done for that team, a lot to prove, which in some ways is is good. And and look, we'll see if they can get it done again. China on Friday night uh, in Ottawa, so we will see what happens with that. Uh, now let's switch to the U.S. men. Uh, Jurgen Klinsmann's Gold Cup roster, twenty three men team that will go to at the very least the group stage you can still make six changes in between the group and knockout stage of course should the u.s advance which we all expect that they would um brian you wrote about this for planet football uh any big surprises for your for your 23 i know demarcus beasley was on the provisional list offered to come out of retirement and he's not on the the final 23 but could come in for the knockout round is that something that kind of caught your eye yeah, I think once we saw Beasley on that on that thirty five man provisional roster, I guess it sort of figured, oh, he'll he'll be in the twenty three. Um, but maybe Jurgen uh, spoke to him and just said, look, in, in case we have an injury, uh, in case we're in, in in some kind of tactical dire straits, are you willing to come in if I call you? And 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 Beasley says, yeah, sure. And and so there we are. So so you know, Beasley certainly not a long term uh, solution for this team. And and so you know, I expect if if there's an injury or something like that. Uh, that that he'll be happy to come in and, and play the knockout rounds. Uh, the things that kind of surprised me are still in back. I expected to see Breck Shea on this team. Um, Jurgen has has put a lot of sort of time and and uh, you know effort into into bringing Shea along and keeping him part of the group and 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 playing him a lot of left back. Uh, he's played in I think six of the seven friendlies this year, um, but uh, but he's not on the team and and maybe that has something to do with the way things are going in Orlando where he's been playing more mid. Um, and then obviously Matt Beasler. Uh, here's an experienced central defender, a World Cup starter who played well in Brazil, who's good with the ball. Uh, you know, someone who you 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 know against Concacaf teams, you're going to want to play the ball on the ground. You're going to want to sort of play to feet, and he's a guy who can do that. Um, and and I expected to see him on the squad as well. So so those are I think if you're gonna if you're gonna say there are surprises in this team, uh, those are the two that I would point to. Uh, clearly Jurgen believes that, uh, you know, between Ventura Alvarado and John Brooks, he has players that not only are guys he wants to look at in the long term, but who are good enough right now, uh, to help them win games against CONCACAF opposition. And then, uh, on the outside, you know, I think all of us are kind of confused, uh, why Timmy Chandler gets chance after chance after chance. He's really yet, he's really never put together a, a comprehensive 90 minute performance in a U.S. shirt. But Jurgen likes him, and he's got the experience in the Bundesliga, so there you go. And then he's got Fabian Johnson as well listed as a defender, and he's probably still the best outside back on the roster. Grant, I know your biggest disappointment is that Alan Gordon didn't make the, <laughs> yes. uh, the final cut. Outrage. Outrage. <laughs> um, I, you have any agree with – I mean, I, I pretty much agree with Brian, especially Beasler. Um, Beasley, I could see being called in for, for and, and all of them really being called in for, for the knockout uh, stage. I mean, you're going to use that to his advantage last time around, and, and it worked out well. Brexhay actually scored the, the winner in the, in the final against Panama. Um, but 
what else stood out for you, I guess? Yeah, I'm looking at the, the relationship between Clint Dempsey and Jurgen Klinsmann to an extent because Dempsey is a guy who actually hasn't been around uh, all that much for recent U.S. games. Um, you know, wasn't involved in these recent wins uh, against the Netherlands and Germany, wasn't involved in the Mexico game. Um, you know, is the captain of the team and, and obviously had that uh, situation uh, with a three-game suspension last week uh, for what happened against the Portland Timbers in the U.S. Open Cup. So um, I don't really know what Clint Dempsey's future as the national team captain with the national team is. And maybe he doesn't, maybe Jurgen doesn't, but clearly it, it, it's a, a thing where Klinsman wants to win this tournament badly, wants to get to the Confederations Cup in 2017, doesn't want to have to go through a playoff against whoever would win this uh, tournament. And so he's going to bring in his, his top guns, even if, um, you know, maybe the, from what I'm hearing, the relationship between Klins, Klinsman and Dempsey right now is not a great one. Um, so, you know, Josie Altidore in as well. And here's a guy who was not involved in uh, the games in Europe uh, recently. So, um, you know, these are guys who have a track record, a proven track record with the U.S. And, and if Klinsman is, is totally prioritizing winning the tournament, I guess it makes sense they're there. For sure. And, and we get to see... Bradley, Dempsey, Altador on the field together, which has turned into somewhat of a, a rare occurrence, right? Between injuries and bands and form and, and you know, just different kind of factors. Maybe um, we do. I mean, I mean, it's, it's going to yeah. be fascinating to see, you know, Klinsman has a lot of uh, tactical options uh, up front and in midfield. I mean, he's been playing a lot of different formations, been using guys a lot of different ways. I mean, I feel like Giassi Zardes has been on the team for two weeks and has played four positions already, you know. <laughs> so, and Giassi Zardes is the sort of player Klinsman likes. I mean, he's got a lot of range. He's got speed. He can attack from deep, you know, deep positions on the field. He can finish. So, you know, does that mean that a guy – you know, does Clint Dempsey slow the team down at this point? I mean, Jurgen is really enamored of sort of speed and 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 you know, kind of quick and clinical attacks. So, um, you know, that's why it's a bit surprising to see a guy like Brad Davis make the team. Brad Davis is not you know so fleet of foot anymore, even though he he still hits a, a lovely dead ball. So there are a lot of options here for Jurgen to use, and, and I would expect to see him in the group stage use a lot of those options and sort of get to the point. Look. The U.S. the U.S. men, in a way, are in a position similar to the women within Concacaf. Um, the U.S. men have made five straight Gold Cup finals. They hardly ever lose to Concacaf opposition anymore. I, I, I had it in the story I wrote. They're they're uh, yeah, they're twenty two three and six against Concacaf teams since the start of twenty twelve. They win almost every game they play against a Concacaf opponent. They've lost one group stage game in Gold Cup history. So we're going to see Jurgen thinking about building a team that's ready to then go into the semifinals or final and beat Mexico, beat Costa Rica, win that game, rather than like stressing out over being at your peak and having your best 11 on the field in game one or two. So I think we'll see some tinkering to start with, and I'm sure I'll be writing two stories a day about all the different tactical options he has uh, with all of these different kinds of players and different kinds of potential formations. I think uh, going along with what you're saying about Davis, also Graham Zusi back in the fold. Um, yes. he's he's kind of been uh, in in the wilderness for a while. He hasn't, get, played, he hasn't played this year. Had no appearances this year for the U.S. Yeah, so I mean, but between the two of them, you've got some good some good dead ball service. And then there's Chris Wondolowski, who uh, he's in form right now. He's he's I believe second leading scorer in MLS. 
Yes. Uh, and he is the nicest guy, yet the most polarizing player for U.S. fans, I feel like, because uh, there's the Belgium miss. There's the fact that people see younger players like Jordan Morris, Juan Agudelo, give them chances. Why, you know, is Chris Wondolowski really going to be in the picture for the 2018 World Cup? Things like that. But it's not about the future with this tournament. It's about right now. And right now, look, the Gold Cup stage, we've seen Wondolowski do do well on it. He what was it, five goals in the in the group stage last time around. Uh and that's why he's on this team. And and I I know there's a lot of consternation over it, but I, I think it's pretty simple, yeah. People still act like that play against Belgium. People act like the ball was sitting on the goal line, you know, an inch away, and you know, Wondolowski had time to read a book, eat a sandwich, and then kick it into an empty goal. I mean they forget the fact that the ball was coming over his shoulder, he had to take it off the bounce. And he had Courtois bearing down on him, giving him basically a sliver of the, you know, a sliver of, of, of the right side of the net to shoot at. You know, sh- should he have put it on frame? Yeah. Do, do better strikers miss that chance? Absolutely. It, it was not a tap-in. It was a chance he'd love to have back. But to, to, for people to act like it defines his career is insane. I mean, the guy, the guy scores goals like crazy. He's, he's beloved by his teammates and the coaching staff. Nobody reads a penalty area better. He gets open, um, and he finishes as, as much as, as any American that's ever played the game in recent years. So, I mean, I, I have no problem with him being on this team, and I still think that a guy like Wando, if you need a goal at the end of the game, you, he will get you a chance. He will read the play, get on the end of something, and get you a chance, and I have absolutely no problem with him being on this roster. At the same time, um, he is not a long-term solution. But, you know, neither is Clint Dempsey, as Grant said. Neither is Kyle Beckerman or Nick Raimondo. I mean, a lot of these guys may not be around in 2018. But you still want him now to, to play in a tournament you want to win. Um, and I'm excited to see the next generation. I'm excited to see more from Giassi's artists. And certainly, even though he's not on the final 23-man team, um, every time he's stepped on the field, Jordan Mars has shown us something, uh, you know, to, to, to be excited about or to be intrigued by. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, Jurgen had to decide which way to go. He chose the here and now, uh, but that doesn't mean that you know Chris Wondolowski is going to be starting in the 2018 World Cup. Yeah, and look, he's probably not going to be starting in the 2015 Gold Cup, right? I mean, you got Altador, Johansson, right. uh, Dempsey. So, look, it's uh, it's a team that's good enough to win Mexico. Uh, you know, they're bringing all of their all their heavy hitters from Europe. Um, so, look, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. USA's Gold Cup group, Panama, Haiti, Honduras. Not a cakewalk in, in CONCACAF terms, but something I think we all expect the U.S. will, will finish atop of um, and move on from there. Um, okay, and speaking of moving on, we are going to wrap up with some MLS talk, a couple of uh, eyebrow-raising issues for a number of different reasons. Let's start with MLS expansion in Atlanta. The Atlanta what, Brian? What what are they called? Atlanta United FC. Ooh. Hey. Points Breaking for creativity. News. Dropping bombs. <laughs> well, by now, everyone, hopefully, if I get my act together, everyone will have read the story by now. <laughs> I I just, my first reaction. Under, and... under, underwhelmed, are you? Sure. Uh, to be fair, though, I was also underwhelmed by Sporting Kansas City. Uh, that worked out okay. So... Uh, I, I, it's a head scratcher for me. I don't, uh, the United FC, you put an Atletico before it, right? I mean, just go all in at this point, Atletico, Atlanta, United <laughs> FC. 
<laughs> I, I thought they were going to go for Maccabi Atlanta. That's that was my really my, <laughs> my hope. Sporting Kansas City was a head-scratcher, but, but going for them on some level was the fact that there wasn't already a team in their own league called Sporting and another expansion team coming in called Sporting and 100 teams around the world called Sporting. Um, yeah, I actually I spent time yesterday looking up like how many Uniteds are th- there are, and it's astonishing. I mean, if you're you know if you're if your name can be used by every team from every city in the world, then it's not so special, is it? Um, so yeah, it's a it's a head scratcher, and I'm sure uh, when they uh, unveil the name on July 7th, they'll explain why it fits Atlanta. I look forward to hearing that explanation. They would not give it to me, no surprise. Well, maybe, maybe by the way, they'll they'll consider Brian's report as a trial balloon and, and get hear the negative feedback and then decide to change by July seventh. I've thought about that. I've I've thought about that. Um, <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I don't think I think this is what look, look. I mean, twenty years ago, teams were called. You had all these weird singular concept names. You know, the 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 pride and the clash and the flash and the rush. <laughs> And the thrust and the spirit—I mean, that, these nonsense names—and and and now we're we, we've we've come we've gone 180 degrees, and 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 what what American fans seem to want is is the cities and the and the, the the Uniteds and the towns and the Albions, and you know that's that's where American soccer fans and and marketers and and owners believe the authenticity lies. So they're. Look, I complain about all white uniforms, but every time a team unveils an all white uniform, people fall all over themselves and talk about how awesome it is. So, this is what the market wants, and and if Atlanta is giving their market what they want, then that's great. I guess I would say this too is that if you're looking at naming a team, starting you know a league or or a team like this, um, you should think about a hundred years from now. Am I going to feel good about this name? And if your team name is the Kansas City Wiz, and you're you're not thinking about 100 years from now, I guarantee you. So, you know, it, it, I do. I will say this: in 100 years, Atlanta United FC will not be a bad name. I don't think, in my opinion. I, I guess I'm not as bothered by this as as some folks are. Uh, it certainly seems like Minnesota United will come in as Minnesota United as well, um, and. You know, just make sure you have a good logo and a mascot. You know, Minnesota Minnesota United is that's not a hundred percent confirmed yet, and which is of course probably frustrating to them. But at least they were playing under that name. You know, I mean, at least they can say, uh, you know, we've been playing under this name for a few years. We we have a brand people like. We you know we've been doing our marketing under this name. Let us keep it. And, and as opposed to Atlanta, which was starting from scratch, Atlanta could have picked anything. And 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 I think that there are are. There are certainly are clubs around American soccer that have names that aren't, you know, sort of the cheesy MLS '96 slash WUSA names uh, that are Cyber just, Rays. Oh, when I was at the Post, I can't tell you how often one of our our I probably did it too, but we had a lot of incidents where copy editors in headlines and captions, freedom, spirit, charge. Power, like they would, they would get mixed up because they the sound like so American much. gladiators. <laughs> any of them could have, any of them except for Cyber Rays, of course. Um, I think the Chicago Fire is a great name. Let me just throw that out there, and I think it was a hard thing to to come up with. That great, great logo, certainly fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it's a hard a hard thing to come up with a name that is not so kind of pat and easy as as Chicago United. Uh, but to come up with something that 
kind of it, it just works and and the whole branding behind it I thought worked uh, not too many MLS teams since then in my opinion have, have done a great job with that but we've seen you know this is Brian's area of expertise but I mean like expertise. I do like <laughs> it is I mean like I look at like the Columbus crew redesign I thought that was pretty well done there are there, certainly the names like the Timbers the Sounders uh, some of the older names that have roots in their community, and 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 it, look, it makes it like timbers, right? There are there are a lot of trees and, and logging in Portland, so that's a an area specific, uh, you know, name that people from that that part of the country can sort of feel tied to. I, I think Houston Dynamo works, you know, because of the energy industry there. Philadelphia Union, I, I, I think, is a is a cool name and a and, and, a, and a really nice logo. Um, you know, some of the names like Revolution and Galaxy. Actually, Kevin Payne told me that. Uh, DC United was originally going to be called Revolution. That, that was the outfitter's idea. Um, so, uh, you know, so some of these names have stood the test of time. And some of these names, you know, you, you can at least say, yeah, there's something about that name that ties in with, with, with this market's history or iconography or something. And, and, uh, and like I said, I mean, Atlanta United, you know, they're going to tell us about how they hope their club can unite the, the, the diverse citizens of a city and, and we'll have heard the same thing from every other team that's ever been called United. So, um, you know, I hope they have a, I hope they have a, a good explanation for it and, and I look forward to hearing it, but, um, call me skeptical. I look at the end of the day, they've already sold what 20,000 or so, almost 20,000 season tickets. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're doing something right. Uh, naming, I, we'll I clearly see. do not represent, look, obviously those people bought it you know, before the name and, and, and nor should a name keep people from going to watch the sport they love. If I was a soccer fan in Atlanta, I would still buy tickets. But, uh, but like I said, I, I think that, you know, I, I I think they could have done better. I think they could have picked a name that better reflected the, the, the unique history and culture of that city, but I'm also not the market thereafter. And and clearly this is what, uh, this is what people like, or otherwise so many teams wouldn't be doing it. The FC at the end of it too. (laughs) I think that, just just go SC if you're going to add. I don't know. I we're, we're nitpicking a little bit. Uh, this is where I go on my little mini rant. And, do it. And rant. A little bit. I, all the time, every day of the year, still get people on Twitter from different parts of the world saying, it's not soccer, it's football. And I'm so used to it by now that I usually keep my stuff together. You know, I, but maybe once or twice a year, I just feel compelled to send out the tweet. If we all love the sport, it doesn't really matter what name we call it. People are going to call it different names. I'm a pretty all-inclusive guy when it comes to uh, just you know having a big tent and saying, if you call it football or football or soccer or calcio or, or whatever you decide to call this sport. No go metna. Love... What's that? No go metna. What is that? It's like what they call it in the, the Slavic and Balkan countries or something that sounds sort of like that. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't totally get why that seems to set people off. Uh, in, in not even getting into the whole history of the term soccer not being an American term, but rather an English term, um, which I, did, I guess I just got into. But <laughs> it's, it's just my little rant. Rant over. All right. All right. Well, I think we should, uh, should just take a couple deep breaths. Uh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> It's going to be okay. We'll see what kind of a roster Atlanta puts together. Carlos Bocanegra, Darren Neal's at the helm. And uh, so obvious we'll since see. you're yeah. since you're our editor. So so when when I'm writing about Orlando City, 
What's funny, actually, Grant, is I would say that almost every club that has the FC after its name has at some point said to me, hey, would you mind calling us Sounders FC? Like, Oof. at least once. Or Republic FC. And um, no. No, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, okay. And, <laughs> and, then, and then we move on. I mean, if you're Toronto FC, I have no choice. But, but if, you're, if you're Portland Timbers FC, uh, I'm just going to call you the Portland Timbers. I'm just uh, you Portland. I, I just call these teams by their cities. Oh, on first reference. On first reference, I'll say okay. Portland Timbers. Then after that, I'll say, I'll say Timbers or, or Portland or something like that. But anyway, I was going to say that I, I, it's also interesting how we have Orlando City, which is, which is an SC, I believe, soccer club, um, mm-hmm. which, which, where City is kind of like the nickname, right? I mean, so we'll call them – sometimes I'll call them City on second reference. But New York City FC, New York City is the name of the place. So <laughs> it's more like – Toronto FC than it is Orlando City FC. So you couldn't really call New York City City on second reference. These are the kinds of things I think about. <laughs> it just makes you want to pull your hair out, right? It's, uh, it's the worst. <laughs> You're the editor. It's your problem. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks. Ultimately, it's your problem. Um, all right, you set let's, the style, my let's, man. Let's get out of this downward spiral towards <laughs> Hades and, uh, and, and finish up uh, with something awesome and that is andrea pirlo uh true story the second name for this podcast was going to be no pirlo no podcast (laughs) uh we're good at naming too (laughs) maybe we should have just chosen that because now that i've said it out loud it actually sounds awesome uh all these reports that he's going to be coming to nycfc that is not city fc brian new york city fc um and join a midfield with Frank Lampard, with Mix Discarude, a lot of a lot of Ned Grabavoy, Ned Grabavoy, Ned Grabavoy, exactly. Sebastian Velasquez, Tommy McNamara. We could we can name the whole roster. Uh, they, it's a lot of details that that we still don't know yet. If he's coming this this summer, if he's actually coming altogether, a lot of different reports. Um, operating under the assumption that he does land with NYCFC. Good move. Head scratching move for for the U.S. soccer fan. It's awesome. The more you can watch Pirlo, the better. The guy's a wizard. He's amazing. The beard, the facial expressions. He's <laughs> he's he's a legend. Uh, Doesn't make sense for the team, Grant. I think they're two very separate questions. I'm excited to have Andrea Pirlo coming to the United States and playing on on a regular basis uh, in the city where I live. And uh, you know, I think that will be a very intriguing experiment, as it were, to see. How Andrea Pirlo fits in with Frank Lampard, David Villa, Mick Disgrude, and that whole cast of characters. Personally, I hope that we see gossip page pictures of Pirlo and Tommy McNamara hanging out at the whatever modern-day equivalent of Studio 54 is, like the old Cosmos did. Um, don't know if that'll happen. But um, as far as like the team itself... Sounds like, sounds like a Stefan SNL skit waiting to happen. <laughs> yes. Um, I, as far as from a team perspective, I think it's perfectly rational to to wonder if if Pirlo is the the perfect fit for this team um you know I I certainly thought uh that New York City FC wanted to go if they're going to get a third DP as they said they would to go a bit younger uh potentially get a forward to have uh alongside Via um and in Pirlo certainly is not young he's still a very good player obviously um but if you're putting a team together, he's not the first guy I would think of um, to fit into that operation. It does make me wonder what Mixed Discrew is going to do. 
Yeah, it probably it probably pushes Mix out out to the flank, right? I mean, he's, he's out wide, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the first thing it does. I mean, obviously NYCFC, you know, they've won three in a row, um, so so they're starting to sort of pull themselves back out uh, from the funk they were in. But but I wonder if some of this is simply a function of being in New York and 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 being a team that you know being a city where where people want to see big names and big stars. And, and being in a city where perhaps the oh, we're an expansion team, it's going to take us a couple of years to get some traction. It doesn't fly, you know, and, and, and there's going to be some expectation for this team to win right now. And so while Pirlo is, is, is a, probably a guy who signs for a year and a half at the most um, and, and is certainly not a guy you're going to build a team around long term, um, you know, maybe he helps you win some games right now and helps you generate some, some, some noise. What I find interesting is how is – how, antithetical this is to the way Jason Christ built Rail Salt Lake. Yeah. And 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 Christ was hired by NYCFC uh because this is a guy who could build a team that could have consistent sustainable success, an identifiable style of play that they did better than anybody else and 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 he showed an ability to as that as the roster evolved to bring players in who could then adapt to and continue that style of play. And and RSL's to sustain success uh, from 2000, you know, starting in 08, but definitely 09 up through 2013 is one of the great runs in MLS history, especially considering uh, the, the fact that they were the smallest market in the league, that they weren't paying a million dollars for any player, that kind of thing. It, it's a remarkable achievement. And he's not being allowed to do any of that in, in, in New York. Um, and whether he's cool with that or not, I don't know. But it, it, I do find it fascinating. I do think the second that Jason Christ took the New York City FC job, he knew that it was going to be completely different from Salt Lake that he was going to and, have and, and, and a different kind of challenge and maybe that's yeah. what he, yeah. and, and the team is the star is not going to be uh, something we see being said a lot with NYCFC so that doesn't mean that Jason Christ can't succeed with this team and on the face of it having a lot more financial support is not necessarily a bad thing if you're trying to build a team certainly teams around the world get built uh, with a lot of money and, and they bring different challenges. And I think for Jason Kreis, who's a very talented coach, uh, uh, this is a challenge for him, but also one that he wanted. So uh, I, I can't wait to see how this goes. I think it's, uh, it's neat to see this kind of ambition, this kind of spending, uh, even if I don't know for certain if it's going to be successful. I, I'm still baffled and upset that Pirlo didn't win the Golden Ball at the 2006 World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I don't understand how anybody could have watched that tournament and voted for anybody else. It still bothers me. Well, he'll, it looks like he'll have a, a chance to win MLS Newcomer of the Year. So That's there's, right. Christ is a really Christ <laughs> is a really ambitious guy, and and he's a guy who wants to coach at the highest level. He's a guy who who, who probably wants to coach the national team someday. And and I agree with Grant to the extent that. If you want to coach at higher levels, you need to coach in these kind of environments where you have big names and, 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 and big stars and big expectations and big egos that you need to sort of plug in and make work and fake it till you make it. You know? And that's what a lot of big club coaches and, and national team coaches have to do because I, I think RSL, while, while fantastic and while that was a wonderful run, is the exception rather than the rule at the highest levels of the game. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's something that we'll we'll see if it plays out first, and then uh, if it does, we'll see how it plays out. It's, but it's, if they announce it this weekend around the around the game against the Red Bulls, that would be uh, that would be fun. That would be capitalizing on some buzz. Uh, and of course, if it doesn't happen, no Pirlo, no podcast. We're we're done, packing it up. <laughs> uh, I, I don't actually mean that, but. 
Look, it's exciting. When you have the chance to sign a player like Pirlo, uh, I think you do it. That's what it comes down to. And, and you kind of, uh, you know, make it make it work. Um, you know, he's he's got so much skill, uh, so much left in the tank still. Um, even you could see in the, in the Champions League final uh, against Barcelona, and this will be my parting thought before we wrap up. Uh, I thought the coolest thing was was him after the game, right? Juventus had just lost this heart-breaking final, uh, you know, a chance for him to to you know potentially leave this team out out on top in the same stadium where he had won a World Cup, uh, and there he is. You see all the emotion on his face. You see him taking the hugs from Xavi. You see him applauding Barcelona as they get their winners' medals. He just oozes class, and MLS would be a better place with a player like him in it. Uh, and I think that's something that we can all agree on. So, Agreed. All right. Well, on, on that note, we are going to wrap up the Planet Football podcast. I want to thank Grant Wall for joining us from Canada, Brian Strauss from D.C. I am Avi Creditor. We will talk to you all next week. the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.